One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, we find out how fungus could end us all, scientists build the first ever living robot that can reproduce, and flying taxis are coming to a city near you. But first, it was during this week in 1967 that Christiane Barnard performed the first human heart transplant in Cape Town, South Africa. Although his patients succumbed to pneumonia only 18 days later, Barnard's innovations have led to the successful techniques used today. This week, Jack Dorsey confirmed that he'd be stepping down from his position as Twitter CEO. Posting on the platform, he said that it was finally time for me to leave, explaining in a statement from Twitter itself that it was because the company's ready to move on from its founders. He founded the company in 2006, and this will be the second time he's left the CEO position. After the first time in 2008, he built the digital payments app Square. So what's he going to do next, and why is he resigning now? We spoke to Smart7 Technology reporter Chris Merriman to find out more. Chris, why do you think he's resigning and why now? Jack Dorsey is very much an idealist, but more than that, he's it's his baby. Twitter was always his baby. And you'd think that would be a reason to stay. But in actual fact, I think he now recognises that Twitter has grown as much as it can with his vision because he... He, as CEO, was regularly saying, no, well, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. I'm not happy with that. But the problem is that was meaning for the shareholders were saying, well, there's all this money we could make and all this growth we could have. And because Jack is, you know, sort of, he doesn't want to change what he created, uh, we're ignoring those opportunities. And I think Jack recognises that in order for it to thrive, he's too close to it now to see, uh, you know, for it to grow the way that it needs to grow as opposed to the way he wants it to grow. I suppose in a way it's outgrown him, you know, having the founder running things uh, for so long can actually... Um, sort of strangle the the potential of a company, and so I, 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 to be honest, I don't think any shareholder is going to argue with that logic. What does this resignation mean for Twitter as a social media platform? Are there going to be big changes now? The question is, are we going to see you know adverts? Um, well. <sighs> We might do. Uh, the decision on how it's going to pay for itself uh, is far too early to say. There is now going to be a paid layer. It's already launched in the States. It's called Twitter Blue. Um, among the elements that you get with that um, are the one thing that everybody's always dreamed of, an edit button, which has caused great excitement since it went live in the States. So, you know, there will be little changes, but I, I imagine it will be evolution, not revolution. Is this definitely the last of Jack Dorsey's Twitter CEO? It's a tricky one. On one hand, I imagine that coming back a third time will probably be the last thing on his mind at the moment, but I don't think 
he necessarily intended to come back the second time. Um, it was very much a case of um, the replacement CEO left suddenly. He came in as an interim CEO and that got made permanent and that was never really the plan. That's how he ended up running two companies at once. Um, could he come back? I mean, he's still on the board. He's still got shares in the company. Um, it is possible, but I imagine this time it is much more about him drawing a line in the sand and saying, right, okay, this is as far as I can take it. There's a new threat on the horizon. A highly contagious fungal infection that may not respond to medication could put hospital and nursing home patients at risk. It's time to fear the fungi. The world is warming up and we're starting to see deadly consequences from an unlikely candidate. The CDC says Candida auris has been detected in six continents since it was first identified about a decade ago. There are so it turns out the, the world is getting warmer and fungi have been shown to be easily adaptable to a higher temperature. That's Dr. Arturo Casadeval, a microbiologist at John Hopkins University who studies fungal diseases. Humans have long been protected from fungal infections thanks to our nice warm blood, but it looks like climate change could ruin that. Candida auris is a highly transmissible fungus. About a third of people infected with it die within 30 days. So Candida auris is unknown to medicine until 2007. You cannot find it in any fungal collection. And then it emerged simultaneously in three continents, South America, Africa, and the Indians uh, and India. And these isolates are not related. They appear to have broken through at the same time. Since then, uh, in the, other independent uh, events have happened. So what we have proposed is that this is the first fungus that becomes pathogenic by breaking through the mammalian thermal barrier. And in, in fact, it was recently isolated from the environment in the Andaman Islands, in two sites, a beach, that is frequented by humans and may have been contaminated by humans and uh, an area that is wild. And the, the organism from the wild area was much less temperature adapted than the one in the beach, consistent with the idea that this organism is adapting to climate change. While humans can and do get fungal infections, we're generally unlikely to fall to a fungus for one big reason. Humans are hot and that makes it difficult for fungus to survive. Now, to make matters worse, human core temperatures have dropped in the past century as we deal with a lot of inflammatory diseases. So humans are getting colder. So the thermal barrier that protects mammals is narrowing. The world is getting warmer, the fungi are adapting to higher temperatures, and humans are getting colder. I think this is trouble ahead. I would point out that many of the organisms in the environment are resistant to, to the existing drugs. Uh, so it would, it would not be surprised if some of them arrive fully resistant. When you think of global warming, focus on the number of very hot days rather than the average temperature. Each very hot day is a chance for selection. New fungal diseases are predicted to emerge, and Candida auris may have been the first the proverbial cannery in the coal mine. Still to come on the Sunday 7, we learn there's an optimal sleeping time, and the London Underground is harbouring a unique type of blood-sucking creature. Bye. Oh, yeah, sleep. We all know it's important, but many of us aren't getting enough of it. Yeah, tell me about it. Mariah Carey is said to need 15 hours of shut-eye to hit her high notes, whilst inventor Nikola Tesla never slept for more than two hours a day. No matter the amount of Z you get, new research is showing that the time you go to sleep has an impact too. There appears to be an optimal bedtime, 
Going to bed around 10 and 11 can lower the risk of developing heart disease, according to a new study from the European Heart Journal. Dr David Plans is co-author of the study and talked to NBC News about his research. The census data that we looked at in this project um, was for 88,000 people of a cohort of almost 500,000. So it's the largest data set that anyone has looked at of real-world data in its relationship between the circadian clock and sleep and then um, cardiovascular disease. The way we did it is by looking at a specific week over seven days, looking at um, people sleeping and when they went to sleep, and then later incidences, sometimes years later, in um, in uh, incidents of cardiovascular disease. And it looks like people who went to sleep between 10 and 11 had a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And that's not to say that sleeping between 10 and 11 has a direct causation. David says that this is only an association. And quite probably what it means is that people who go to bed at a reasonable hour then wake up early enough to see some sunlight. And because the eye has ocular receptors that reset the circadian clock when they see sunlight, they, people who don't, people who miss it, don't get to reset their clock. And it's not really about how long you sleep. It's a well-documented fact that eight good hours of sleep are a good idea. But, you know, between five to eight, you already get the periods of REM sleep and deep sleep that you need. It's really the question of how we evolve to be daytime creatures. And at night, and in the dark especially, we do lots of really important work that resets metabolism, that resets the brain, that allows us to digest and process um, everything that's happened during the day. And without that being reset... The next morning, the brain and the body think that it's still yesterday. And so you live in this constant now, in a state of jet lag. And that causes inflammation and it causes, um, uh, obviously, in, in the end, risks like cardiovascular disease. The team also say findings appear to be stronger in women than men, although the reasons for this remain unclear. When you look at the age group that, that, that the cohort we looked at, um, um, you know, was, you know, they were between 43 and 72 years old. So right. they, there could be an influence um, of the menopause there. There's an endocrine difference potentially, but there's also the socioeconomic difference and the very real reality that women have at least two jobs when they work full time and, um, and that they work harder than men. And that's the plain truth. Apologies to any Londoners out there listening because this might ruin your already dreaded commute on Monday. We all know about the rats, the lost pigeons and the occasional foxes, but it turns out that the London Underground, aka the Tube, also has its own type of mosquito. The insect first caught people's attention during World War II when Londoners sheltered in the Tube to escape German bombing raids and they found themselves getting attacked by mosquitoes. Culex pipiens molestus is a form or biotype of Culex pipiens that has evolved to living underground. This is Natural History Museum entomologist Erica McAllister. As she explains, research suggests that mosquitoes have evolved some adaptation since moving underground. They behave very differently to their above-ground relatives, Culex pipiens pipiens. Feeding on mammals, including us, instead of birds, they are active all year round, mate one-on-one -on -one rather than mass swarms, and females don't need a blood meal before they can lay eggs, all of which helps them live successfully underground. Molestus is found in underground structures all around the world. Mosquitoes are brilliant at exploiting different habitats, including human-made ones. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the world's first living robots can now reproduce and an AI app that'll help you communicate with your kitty cat. Right after this. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso, or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Scientists have unveiled the world's first computer-designed living robots. They're about the size of a poppy seed and miraculously capable of self-replication. Created by a team of biologists and computer scientists from Tufts University and the University of Vermont, these tiny biological machines are called Xenobots. Built from frog cells, Xenobots self-assemble a body from a single cell, don't require muscle cells to move, and have even demonstrated recordable memory. They were first created by the team over a year ago, but this new generation of Xenobots move faster, navigate different environments, and can work together in groups and heal themselves if damaged. Scientists also say they've witnessed a never-before-seen type of replication where the organisms are capable of gathering hundreds of loose cells together to assemble Xenobot children. Sounds terrifying. Here's Josh Bongard from the University of Vermont team explaining it all to ABC News. Turns out that in this case, the AI came up with a design that is much more replicative. And that design looks like a Pac-Man. It's a pretty simple uh, circular object. It's got a little wedge cut out of it. And when these nine Pac-Man move around in the dish, they unintentionally get cells caught in their quote-unquote mouths. They push those uh, cells into larger piles and larger piles become larger and stronger and faster moving children, which make larger grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We got as far as great-great-grandchildren with these AI-designed Recognising the tremendous future of this technology, the researchers hope that one day these xenobots could be programmed to perform useful functions such as finding cancer cells in the human body or trapping harmful microplastics in the ocean. There are some suggestions about what they could be useful for because they're very small. They're less than a millimetre across. Um, so it may be in the long term we're able to create biobots from human cells and they might have actually have medical applications. You might be able to ingest one of these bots and have it do useful work inside the body. In the much more near term, uh, it's probably going to be uh, underwater applications. Those underground mosquitoes have scared you away from public transport. There's a futuristic new way of getting about coming your way soon. Urbanization is the biggest trend of the 20th century. As populations continue to grow, especially in emerging markets, this trend shows no signs of slowing down. The technology that helped us build the world's greatest cities, electricity, steel, concrete and the automobile, continues to support the growth of urbanization, but it is coming at a terrible cost. 
The voice you just heard is of Stephen Fitzpatrick, founder and CEO of Vertical Aerospace, the pioneering startup launching the world's first commercial flying taxis. Road transport accounts for a significant portion of air pollution in cities and towns. The most widespread pollutants are tiny particles, mostly from fossil fuel burning and nitrogen dioxide from diesel vehicles. The serious impact on human health from road pollution in urban areas is well known, and researchers say even low levels of pollution may harm wildlife, including birds, mammals and insects. And as our population continues to grow, as does the pressure on existing infrastructure. But Vertical Aerospace has a plan to change all of that. CEO Stephen Fitzpatrick sat down with Kay Burley on Sky's Climate Show to explain exactly how. The wonderful thing about the technology we're using, it's been developed already over the last few decades, primarily in the, um, in the car sector, the automotive sector. And so there's already these great industrial uh, partners and supply chains ready to be uh, taken over into aerospace. And so we're working with some of the UK's leading manufacturing and engineering groups. And uh, UK consumers and passengers will be able to fly in these vehicles from 2024, 2025 onwards. So it sounds like it's you know very futuristic, but actually it's just a few years away. We're working with battery, uh, battery powered only when we launch, but very quickly we'll be moving into uh, a hybrid powertrain in particular hydrogen is something we're looking very closely at um, and these are technologies that are being developed today they will be ready in within this decade um, and the beautiful thing about um, the, the, the EV also there's electric vertical takeoff and landing is that you don't need to travel you know 10 15 20 even 50 miles to go to an airport you're going to be able to uh, depart and arrive much closer to your destination so it's going to transform how we travel around cities and if you think hs2 uh, as a wonderful piece of engineering as it is it is a, an enormous uh, expense that we are paying to create some ground infrastructure to help bring passengers from london to birmingham uh, in just under an hour uh, we're going to be able to do exactly the same uh, journey at about the same cost without tens and tens of billions of pounds invested in the railway network um, because we, we're, we're flying through the sky. So it is really going to transform how we travel around. It's zero carbon. And as we start to look at longer range uh, journeys, we're, we're going to start to make real inroads into the fossil fuel based uh, aerospace sector. Do you ever look at your cat and wonder what's going on inside that little head? Well, now there's an AI-powered app that tells you exactly how your cat's feeling. It's called Tably, and it claims to actually assess a cat's mood through a facial recognition-type technology. What? My name is Mish Priest, and I'm a venture lead for Sylvester AI. It's an animal health technology company, and basically what I do is um, explore opportunities to use technology to help animals. So our app is Tably, and what it does is it helps uh, human cat owners know if their cat is in pain or not. So it uses facial recognition technology. All you need to do is take a picture with your camera, and then it can give you a result. The app works by using criteria that's known as the feline grimace scale. It uses um, artificial intelligence, so specifically machine learning, and it's coupled with the feline grimace scale. And what the feline grimace scale is, it's and it's a way for humans to be able to determine if a cat is in pain or not based on the ear positioning, the eye positioning, the muzzle, whiskers, um, 
things like that. And so we were able to train a machine using machine learning and a series of, of images to be able to make that determination. So if you're somebody who has a cat but you don't have that training, you can just use the app and it can help you determine how your cat is doing. Alice Potter's an RSPCA cat welfare expert and she also sees the app as a valuable tool for cat owners in their day-to-day -day lives. So this app would be a really good, useful part of a tool set that cat owners could use in conjunction with other things to assess how their cat is feeling. So thinking about the rest of the cat's body, so paying attention to, you know, how tense they hold their muscles, where they hold their head, is it close to their body, um, their tail as well. Cats that are like worried or scared will hold their tail really tight and tense to them. And then aside from that, there's also just thinking about their behaviour in terms terms of, you know, are they eating, drinking, toileting, sleeping like they usually do? You know, have they started showing more aggressive behaviour? Have they started hiding more? You know, all of these things help to build the context, um, which is really important. This has been The Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Produced and published by Daft Doris. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.